First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. You're tuned in to what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Earth. It is, of course, 4ZZZ, be it on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM, digital devices such as DAB or smart speaker, listening via the Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4 zzz.org.au and of course you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the ingenious on demand feature also found at that URL we also now have a weekly podcast of the show for your listening pleasure a condensed version of the show without the music which my mum prefers just search for our show name which is of course no idea spelt with a k your weekly dose of science, and joining me today to speak all things science are some of my favourite science communicators. May I please introduce Jet Setter Jay? That's me. And Gregarious Gabe. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> 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 Morning, Max. How you doing? Very well, thank you. We have, uh, I'm pretty, pretty keen for this morning's round of science. You've got mm. stuff, Max, I think. If I read your story correctly, you've got something on why it's hard to get hard on Mars. Correct. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. You've been, uh, Peter's, you got should... something, <laughs> Peter's got something <laughs> on why Australian wild dolphins are showing up record levels of toxic forever compounds. Um, I've got stuff on how quinoa plants have tricked scientists with their mini, the purpose of their mini water bladders that cover their leaves. Mm. I've also got, I think, what is the best media release of the year it's coming in late but i think for my weird science but i have in this is the best one that we've yeah. had all year max what are you lining us up with we've joined by the vibrant v's here Hello. i was told last week i had to use some alliteration so i'm trying to i was going through this whole list of adjectives for each of your letters of your start you of your name some good ones yeah so yeah, i'll get some more for you next week gabe so we'll <laughs> see got a list going <laughs> <laughs> We should do a bit of this. Who wants to kick us off? Whoa. Yeah, that Whoa. mic's... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that means I'm going. Let's Please do, it. do it. With what I think is the best media release from the year. Uh, coming in late at the end of November, but I reckon it's taken the cake. Uh, I do want to put out a little warning that there is uh, some maybe not G-rated talk about animal sex in this one. So if you're not keen on that on Wednesday sex. mornings. No yeah. way. Who would have thought? I know. No yeah. way. I don't know. I feel bad. It's it? ba- well, I, I think I'm mainly concerned because it might, like some of it might be 
what's called forced copulation in animals, which okay. might not be what you want to listen to on a Wednesday morning. So mm. give it a miss for a few minutes if that's the case. But if it's not, Max, do yes. you remember a little story, or Jay, you were there too, mm-hmm. I ran a few weeks ago about mm. echidnas? Yes. Yes. Do you remember what was particularly exciting about echidnas? The four prong. Yeah. A four prong what? Approach. Penis. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so I thought that would be the, the, the best animal story we ran all year. Uh, but there's another one that's come out that I think rivals it, and it comes from the world of bats. Bats are pretty weird at the best of times, uh, but there's one called the serotine bat, which has raised the bar, I think, on the echidna story. Mm. The echidnas, I mean, their, their claim to fame is they have a four-pronged penis, right? Mm. That was what we, we covered a few weeks ago on the show. These bats have penises that are one-fifth the length of their entire body and have penises that are seven times the length of the female's vagina, hmm. as well as oh. seven times the width of it. Uh-huh. They have been studied over in <laughs> Switzerland because, because there is something weird going on with those numbers and they don't add up and they never why. So these researchers put cameras in where bats were breeding <laughs> sure and did. recorded hundreds of hours of oh bat boy. sex bat to see what was happening nice. one guy in particular watched <laughs> hundreds of hours this is a citizen scientist they recorded se- 97 mating events yeah. 93 of which they say occurred in a dutch church just had to throw that in there <laughs> uh, <but laughs> <laughs> what they found was that these bats are using their penises to actually like hold the mate their female mate in place and then copulate with them by planting semen on top, like just planting semen on them in the way that birds do. Like when birds mate, they just do what's called cloaca to cloaca mating, Mm. where they just sort of touch. And they're saying that these bats basically do the same thing. They use their penis in their words as an arm and place semen on the female. In acts that can last on average 53 minutes, uh, the longest mating event they recorded lasted 12.7 hours. Holy moly! 12 and a half hours, Damn, Max. That's got stunning. Uh, <laughs> and to just sum this up, I'm yeah. going to quote what the researchers said on what their next steps are. We are trying to develop a bat porn box, which will be like an aquarium with cameras everywhere so that they can further study <laughs> what's going on during bat sex. Like, I don't know who wrote this release out of, out of the U- U- University of, of Lausanne in Switzerland, but they knew what they were doing. They got their coverage. Uh, yeah, nice. these bats use their penises like big arms during sex. That's horrific. There you go. Thank Thanks, you. Gabe. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Gabe. Okay, part two of this. My research comes from a team of members from so many universities, so you've got to get ready for your QS rankings. Oh and you're not allowed to read it. Yes, I did see one. So I'm not the University of Arizona, QS ranking. 150. I'm going to go 230. That's close. What do you got? I read it, yeah. so I'm 285. Not <laughs> Texas A&M University, QS ranking. It's a bit lower. Uh, this is riveting radio. How many unis are there in the world? <laughs> like, what, <where's laughs> the it's 134. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Ohio State University, QS ranking, 151. And the University of Minnesota, you know what that is? 185. <laughs> 195. 195. <laughs> Anyway, they've shown that to make your next apology more effective, use language that goes against your stereotype. 
The research has been published in the Journal of Applied Psychology. The team used past research to define masculine and feminine language, including a study from 2003. Should we accept that? No. A study from <laughs> 2003? I think anything that ties to like gender yeah. language already is like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that defined masculine language as having more agency and being more assertive, confident, and self-assured, whereas a feminine language was described as warm, communal, and nurturing. The team labelled apologies with more masculine language as angentic and those with feminine language as communal. As with all good psych studies, the researchers first turned their attention towards celebrities. The team began searching through a platform that is well known for celebrity apologies, and that is, of course, X, formerly Twitter. <laughs> they examined 87 apology tweets from celebrities, including ones from amazing. Lizzo, Kevin Hart, Tyler Posse, and Kendra Wilkinson. I need to know a few of those names. No, me too. Yeah. Public reaction to those tweets supported the idea of the apology benefiting by violating gender stereotypes, especially for the women in the sample. For the celebrity women delivering apology on the platform, a one-point increase in agentic language, well, that's masculine language, as measured on a five-point scale, returned an average of more than 17,000 additional likes. The researchers then turned their attention to what they termed everyday apologies. 366 working adults participated in a scenario in which their accountant sends them an email apologising for making a mistake on their taxes. Individuals were randomly assigned to one of four groups classified by a male or female accountant delivering a stereotypically masculine or feminine apology. Participants then rated different components of the apology and determined where they would like to continue using that accountant. The data lined up with the results from the celebrity study showing for both male and female the non-stereotypical apology was more effective. In their final study, the researchers used a scenario involving a paperwork error by a nurse to see if using a more traditional female occupation would change perceptions. Once again, the data showed non-stereotypical apologies were seen as more effective, especially for females apologising. Across the four everyday apologies, uh, the studies in accounting or nursing scenario, researchers found that the women delivering a non-stereotypical apology increased its perceived effectiveness by an average of 9.7%. For men using a non-stereotypical apology, it increased only to a factor of 8.2%. The research team is hoping the results can lead people to think beyond how often we apologise, we're looking at you, Gabe, and to put more <laughs> focus on how we apologise. It's not about frequency, but how we construct apologies differently to communicate more. Interesting. Mm. Mm. I interesting. I'd be curious <laughs> to see like what a you know co quote unquote like communal versus like what was the word? Angentic. Uh, yeah. Apology actually looks like. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I should have done a bit more research. I was thinking about that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Next week maybe. With some AI voices. <laughs> Speaking of AI voices, yes. here's my weird science. Nice. Futurism. They're a really cool little science and tech journalism website that are doing a lot of interesting work, especially in the space of holding other news outlets accountable 
for their use of AI. They were looking through the famous American magazine Sports Illustrated Mm -hmm. and noticed some pretty interesting new articles popping up on the website. They're mostly lists of like product product recommendations and all of them were written by people who don't seem to exist. Mm. Um, And they sound a bit weird too. These are some quotes from a review from the best full-size volleyball that you can buy. (laughs) 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 So some of these include, volleyball can be a little tricky to get into, especially without an actual ball to practice with. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not, yeah. Um, I, I reckon it'd be pretty easy without a ball. Like, you reckon? <laughs> yeah. Here you go. <laughs> Imaginary volleyball. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the balls was uh, one of its selling points. While the ball is sold deflated for obvious reasons, you'll be playing with the ball in no time after you pump air into it. Nice. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. cool. So that, I guess, sets it apart from the rest. I, I really enjoyed this sentence later on. Yep. Um, when it's talking about one of these volleyballs, it'll bounce back instantaneously, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> That's actually really how does funny. a volleyball, <laughs> volleyball <laughs> metaphorically bounce back? <laughs> like I'm fascinated. Mm. The last one that I have, and again, this is like this is like this is the product, and this is what sets it aside from the other products on this list. And it starts: Who says that volleyballs have to be the same color? Ooh. There you go, and that that one was just saying that that volleyball um, you can buy it in several different colors, no. and that makes it more important than the others. <laughs> That's um, the AI knows what's up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really just did his market research. So that article was written by um, a guy called Drew. When you look at Drew's bio on the page, it says that Drew likes to say that he grew up in the wild, which is partially true. Mm. He grew up in a farmhouse surrounded by woods, fields, and a creek. Drew has spent much of his life outdoors and is excited to guide you through his never-ending list of the best products to keep you from falling to the perils of nature. Which definitely oh, sounds what? like... A shotgun. Volleyball. <laughs> 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 Futurism also found that Drew's image could be purchased online off a website where you generate AI images of people. Drew is described as a neutral white young male. Um, Also, Drew has several problems with, like, his teeth are quite wrong. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's an interesting image. They also found that when they looked at the history of the article, the author actually changed more than once. Uh, Drew used to be Sora Tanaka, whose image can also be purchased online off the same site. So once Futurism released its article, the Union of Sports Illustrated Writers released a statement reacting in what I think is very well-deserved outrage. Mm. Um, Sports Illustrated parent company, The Arena Group, they said that the content was not AI-generated, which is bold, um, but that they did commission it from a third-party company called Advon Commerce. Um, They said Advon Commerce promised them it was definitely written by humans, but that their writers use fake names and images for privacy reasons. So the Arena Group then said it ended its partnership with Advon Commerce, not because of AI, but because the use of fake names went against their policy. So I think that's really interesting because uh, I think I don't know, companies just sort of being like, oh, no, guys, don't, it's definitely not AI. Yeah. Um, it's just fake names and people who don't exist mm. and articles that sound pretty weird and we're going to buy it and put that on our websites. But yeah. don't worry, guys, it's not AI. It's, it's interesting to me that they really stood by that. 
I, I think it comes back to a lack of proofreading at the end of the day. So when you, I, I'm I'm pretty cool with AI writing stuff, but then you you still need that human sort of um, gatekeeper to just have a look at it and um, just at that point just it. do it yourself for real, like. A list of volleyballs? Surely, <laughs> surely, surely. Yeah, get the some guy paid thirty bucks to write like a list of best yeah. volleyballs. Like we do not need. It, I feel like it would take more work because you'd have to put the product into ChatGPT or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then be like, write a list. Oh no, yeah. write it more like this. Write it more like that, yeah, and then yeah, proofread. Yeah. Like, write three sentences hmm. for each volleyball. You're done. Sorry, <laughs> and that way you're not like using copyrighted like using a a um you know. AI generating system that is just like regurgitating stolen words anyways. Mm. But whatever. That's my weird science. <laughs> I think this whole show is a science experiment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's let's just get into the science. Our safe space. Triple Z. We want to appeal to your senses. About that time for something that we usually do at the bottom of the hour. What is that guy? <laughs> it's time to throw to our friendly neighbourhood marine scientist who this week has a story for us on why Aussie dolphins are showing up some really worryingly high concentrations of forever chemicals. So it turns out that some of Australia's most endangered dolphins are swimming around with the world's highest currently known concentrations of PFAS, or as they're otherwise known, forever chemicals. Yay. These are a group of persistent pollutants that almost never break down in the environment, hence their name. You may have heard of PFAS because it has now been globally recognised for its threats to the environment and to human health. Oh yeah, and we put it in literally everything. From carpets to upholstery, cosmetics and cookware, PFAS is beyond common. We love it because it has this unique ability to be non-stick, repelling both water and oil, which saves us a lot of time scrubbing and cleaning. They also have less household users with the major use in Australia having been firefighting foam, dowsing areas of the country in extremely high levels of these chemicals. In recent years, public concern over PFAS has pushed for ongoing investigations into the effects of using these chemicals for firefighting and military operations. But it's much bigger than just that. Researchers all around the world are saying that we really don't know enough about the over 4,000 compounds currently out there especially given what we now know they can do, with PFAS being linked to a range of toxic effects, including elevated risks of cancer, immune responses, metabolic syndromes, and serious reproductive effects. And these toxic effects are primarily due to PFAS's ability to masquerade as a hormone. You see, these are very confusing chemicals for your body. They appear to be hormones, which are things that tell your body to act or not act in certain ways. And anybody who's ever had to take hormones as a drug can tell you immediately how alarming that is. Though there is research and growing evidence that they can affect development and reproduction in humans, we know for sure that they're affecting marine mammals. Which is why it's so concerning that last week researchers from RMIT recorded the world's highest concentrations of PFAS from the livers of deceased Burrinan dolphins. These dolphins are critically endangered with only 200 individuals remaining in the wild. And these little dolphins aren't the only ones in our waters getting hit. Dolphins from Western Australia, South Australia and New South Wales were all found to have extremely high levels of these chemicals. We don't know for sure whether they're having an effect on our highly endangered Brennan dolphin, but it's definitely a worry given the sky-high PFAS concentrations in their livers were enough to cause liver toxicity and altered immune responses. But why are dolphins being hit so hard by this? It's not like they're sat near drain pipes guzzling pills. It's actually because they're predatory carnivores, and good ones at that. It's called bioaccumulation, and it goes like this. 
pollutants enter the system and some small plant or algae picks up and grows with it. Then some small snail eats that and because the chemical can't break down, it gets absorbed in some quantity by the snail, the amount growing over its lifetime the more it eats. Then a small fish comes along and eats all of those PFAS-ridden snails, so their chemicals get passed along to the fish. And then a bigger fish, and then a bigger fish, and so on and so forth, until we reach our mammal, the dolphin. You see, the further up the food chain you are, the more you have to absorb. You're not just eating that fish's PFAS, you're eating the PFAS of all of the things that fish ate, and all of the fish those fish ate, and all of the crustaceans those fish ate, and more. But even with bioaccumulation, the levels of PFAS found in these dolphins is truly shocking. Because we're supposed to have been really cutting down and restricting these since the mid-2000s when this started being raised as an issue. So the authors raise the point that now we know that there are high levels of PFAS flowing around our system, we need to figure out where they're coming from. Because these dolphins are our canary in the coal mine. You're tuned into 4ZZZ and this show is a no idea with me, Max. J. V. Welcome, Izzy. What's up? And Gabe. What do you got for us, Gabe? Whoa, Gabe, we cannot hear you, my friend. Oh, oh do you want to put him off preview? There Let's try go. that one again. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. Oh, my goodness, Max. <laughs> I've never had to put five microphones on before. Every damn time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, man. Quinoa plants. We're going to talk about them. Because they've got a weird defense system on them. If you ever look really up close, usually through a microscope, on quinoa plants, what you're going to see are lots of tiny little like water balloon looking things, like tiny droplets of what look like water covering the leaves and the flowers and part of the rest of the plant, like just coating them. A lot of other plants have this, but quinoa plants are covered in them. It's like this tiny little layer of bubbles all over the plant. For like 100 years or so, 127 years, according to the researchers of this latest research, we've people have just assumed that these bubbles are helping with drought and salt tolerance. There's something about them that means that the plants either are resi- can, can like store salt outside of themselves because so they can suck up more water and then put the salt out in these little bubbles, or maybe just makes them more drought tolerant because it's a way of, of protecting their water, of storing their water, something about that. They've always thought it's a drought and salt tolerance thing and because quinoa is such an important product for everyone around the world they've sort of used these traits as evidence of like if we plant the ones that have lots of these little water bubble water bladder things on them then they'll be drought and salt tolerant and and perform as well as a quinoa plant can perform but some researchers from university of copenhagen qs ranking oh uh, 282 no way 70 78 107. So these researchers have just sort of tested this idea and found that it's not just wrong, it's actually the complete opposite direction. They searched through millions of quinoa plants to find some that don't naturally didn't have this covering of mini water balloon things on them and then they spent three years stress testing the balloonless plants against the natural quinoa plants that have this covering of little water balloons and to that end they cultivated them without the bladder and then tested them in conditions which replicated like low water and high salt periods of growth. So they were trying to stress test them of how they can deal with a lot of salt and not a lot of water. The ones with these little water balloons growing on them wasn't just that they were like not better at surviving in drought and high salt conditions, they were actually worse at surviving in these 
these stressful conditions of high salt and low water. The ones that didn't have little water balloons covering them performed slightly better than they did. There was a catch. What the researchers also noticed was that, was that the quinoa plants that they'd bred up to not have these little water balloons all over them were getting heavily infested in small insects yeah, throughout okay. this, these stress yeah. tests. Mm. And the normal quinoa plants that had their mini balloon layer weren't getting these infestations right. to the same level. So when they analysed the contents of these little water balloons, what they actually mm. found were toxic compounds. Insecticides. Nice. Pretty much yeah. natural insecticides <laughs> to stop intruder insects that want to feed on the plants. They also reckon it might also act as like a physical block that stops bacterial diseases from physically entering mm. the quinoa plants as well. I thought so it was like a mirror and then the insects are sort of fascinated by the, the mirror effect <laughs> of the droplet. <laughs> the particularly vain insects, Max, <laughs> right. may also get distracted by the sight of their own reflection in the water droplet. <laughs> Me as an insect, so that's, to be that's honest. That's what I have <laughs> <laughs> Quinoa plants grow a layer of mini water balloons. Uh, have a look at a photo of this. It's amazing. I might put it up as the picture for this the show on the mm. 4ZZZ website because it's just this covering of little water droplets over a quinoa plant, which for 127 years we've thought is a drought and salt tolerance thing and have been using it in the field as like a drought and salt tolerance indicator. Uh, but it turns out it's the opposite and it's actually helping them protect them from pests. And so now they've got this trade-off they can use of more water balloons means more pest resistance. Less water balloons means better at surviving in drought and salt conditions. And they can use that across the world now to more successfully grow quinoa for the to feed everyone. Brilliant. There you go. That's so interesting. Those water balloons, um, are they saponins by any chance? Do you know? No idea. They call them water bladders. Water bladders. Okay, term. weird. Yeah. yeah, because I know that um, some... Yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, no, no. All, all, yeah, only other thing I know is that they're... Um, uh, what are the little hairs called on plants that are like they, they sometimes turn into stinging nettles and things like there's some adaptation of those is mm. what I also read oh interesting yeah. okay yeah. fair enough here you go you're tuned into 4 Z, and this show is No Idea with me Max J Izzy V and Gabe and we're going to hear some of this Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to 4ZZZ just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I will keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max and I'm not talking Van Staffen. Lights out and away we go. MotoGP happened on the weekend. Aussie Jack Miller qualified fourth for the Valencia GP, riding his factory KTM. He managed to come home twelfth in the sprint, in Saturday's sprint. And then he did what only Jack can do, Gabe. He performed what you like to call the Miller Special <laughs> during Sunday's feature race. Jack get this jack was leading the race by a significant no, gap uh it had nine laps to go and then he just binned it and it's he, not and even a joke at this point is it like nah. it's just you you could copy and paste that script and he just changed the numbers a little bit every race from mm. you know he qualifies fourth or seventh or eighth or something goes up a few spots and then either just burns up his tires and and just loses all the speed or falls off the bike exactly and, and and it was rife on Reddit when you read Reddit because no, everyone was worried about him. Like, yeah. just knowing that he's not going to manage to uh, get on the podium, he's just going to do something really yeah. weird. <laughs> so, so don't go to the lead too early. That's what I'm saying. So that's it for MotoGP this year. The 2023 world champion is Francesco Bagnaia, mm. riding a Ducati, which also won the Constructors 
another fantastic year of racing in MotoGP. Aussie Jack Miller finished 11th in the Riders' Championship. Better luck next year. Yeah. Let's hope so. Not what he would have been expecting going into that season, I don't think. No, he thought he could have been world he's, champion. He's a phenomenal driver. And he, he is. Just a rider and just so well uh, for like three quarters at the time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. V8 supercars happened on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Races 27, 28 were held in Adelaide over the weekend. So Cam Waters driving a Ford Mustang won Saturday's race and Matt Payne won Sunday's race also driving a Mustang. Brody Kostecki accrued enough points to be crowned 2023 champion driving a Camaro. Brody, Brody also scored the most poles for the season. So again, I say thank you Supercars for another fantastic year of racing. For those wondering, SVG or Shane Van Gisbergen mm. was third in both the drivers and most poles championships for this year. As we know, SVG is off to North America to race in the big leagues, NASCAR, which is one of the most popular uh, racing uh, what things in America. So it should be exciting. No comment there, Gabe. We got all cool with that. Approved. <laughs> 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 no, it's interesting, like, like, because I think it's always fun to see Aussie uh, uh, people who are in Aussie sports leagues go and join an American equivalent. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it happens in the NFL sometimes. It happens, well, basketball. We play basketball here and they play basketball there. But with the racing, I don't think it's really happened much. Um, like, we haven't, I don't really know of many, Max, you know, of any, like, exports to other racing leagues that have done well in Aussie leagues first. It'd be curious to see how it goes. And he's already had a good test run yeah, in yeah. his first race in NASCAR, winning it. Yeah. Uh, on the streets of Chicago, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. We've had, well, I'm trying to think of the people who uh, have raced over there. Like, Dick Johnson, he raced over there for a little while. Mm-hmm. But he got T-boned when he was leading the race, so he wasn't too happy with the Americans' uh, driving styles or etiquette over there. Mm. The um, I'm just trying. To, Marcus Ambrose, he was also in uh, NASCAR. Uh, he used to win the uh, the street circuits, but never won the oval sort of circuits. The uh, and then we got uh, Scott McLaughlin, who went over to IndyCar, which is pretty good. Again, mm. I mean, remember SVG and Scott McLaughlin are both New Zealanders, so we sort of we sort of semi claim them like Russell Crowe, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> there we go. F one also happened on the weekend. This yes, time in Abu mm-hmm. Dhabi, Aussie Scott Piastri and um, Scott Oscar Scott Scott on the mind. Aussie Oscar Piastri managed to qualify P three for the race mm. in his McLaren. Oscar went. On to finish an impressive sixth. Meanwhile, compatriot Daniel Ricky Ricciardo in his updated Alpha Tauri, featuring a new and improved floor, qualified 13th on the grid and came home just out of the points in the 11th. This was the final race of the F1 calendar. Max, for 2023 anyway, Max Verstappen and Red Bull had already secured both the Drivers' and Constructors' Championships, but Max felt obliged to finish off the year on a high. Verstappen, apart from winning the race, ended the season as the only driver to complete every lap of the season, led for more than 1,000 laps, and also broke Jim Clark's 1963 uh, record for the highest percentage of laps led in a year. Go for it. What do you got for us, Izzy? Crazy. Gabe, comments? <laughs> good bad about the calendar year it was a good race well it was it was good fun i think it's weird being in these periods you talked about this before it's weird being in a period where this one race that dominates because they get looked back on as 
very important historical times where one person was just so much better than the rest. Hmm. But in the moment, it's pretty boring because <laughs> it's only one person winning a race. Mm. Uh, and that's what we sort of had. And it was sort of what we had in the race. Like, I remember enjoying it a lot in the moment. I can remember almost nothing of what happened in that race a few days ago. Yeah. Hmm. Because it's just like, it was cool. But at the end of the day, the same guy was in the lead the whole time. Hmm. And there was never really anything at stake except for I think it was like the team who finished second or third it was a, there was That's a bit right. of a jostle yeah, there yeah. versus, uh, Ferrari yeah they did a bit of jiggery pokery but it didn't work out mm, it, so. I fear <laughs> I fear we're turning into a bit of a Michael Schumacher at the moment Era, where we're just yeah. watching the same guy win every season and every race well that was Lewis Hamilton from 2014 as well so yeah right up until 21 so what I did notice Max mm. was this year we didn't get our silly season Usually every time mm. in Formula mm. One, there's the silly season, which occurs about two thirds of the way through, where they start playing hot potato, or not, that's the wrong game, what's it called? Musical chairs, that's mm. the one, <laughs> with all the driver's seats for the next year. Yes. And mm. they start moving mm. around. And this year, I, it's the first time since I've really it's been- It's fairly static, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anything's changing at I'm the moment, as things stands now. Yeah. Everything, Touch this word. exact same 20 drivers will be in the exact same seats next year. Or uh, perhaps Logan Sargent in the Williams. Yes, oh, yeah. the American yeah. who's underperforming and maybe Very underperforming, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but as it stands, nothing's going to change. Maybe one change, which is a bit weird because we didn't get our, our fun little rumour mill period no. of mm-hmm. uh, who's going where and why. So we'll see. We'll see what happens next year. Should be interesting. It's going to be a very... Uh, I don't know. There's not, there's not a lot of change slated, is there, Max, for between this year and next year? The next big change for F1 is a few years away. That's right. They jump into a new generation the, of cars. Yeah, 2026 is we've got to wait for that. Yeah. But th- and that's why the team is a bit concerned because the Red Bull is so far ahead. Apparently, yeah. they didn't make any changes for the car since August. So that, that car is still winning. So imagine what Which next means year. they've been working on next year's car since August. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so the team's a bit concerned about that. And also, uh, Yuki, he managed to um, lead a few laps during yeah. uh, Sunday's race, which was good in the Alpha Tori. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, he did too. Good okay. on him. The Valtteri Bottas and Roman <laughs> Grosjean report. Valtteri driving his Alpha Romeo came home second last in Sunday's <laughs> F1 race and 15th in this year's Drivers' Championship. Meanwhile, the Phoenix, Roman Grosjean, was busy doing whatever Roman does when he's not racing, probably flying his twin-engine Beechcraft Baron. So I thought, why not unpack some of the performance specs of his six-seater aircraft? So its maximum speed is 205 nautical uh, knots, or 380 kilometres per hour. That's at sea level. The cruise speed... What's happened? Let Ag in. Oh, Dave yeah. can do it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, no, you really wrecked my flow here. Oh, no. Yeah. What a shame. <laughs> oh, this sucks. <laughs> no, pray tell, Max. Pray well, tell. This is what I hear about the Beechcraft Baron, didn't they? <laughs> the, um, anyway, it, can, it has a takeoff and landing distance of less than 600 metres, and we'll leave it there. You're tuning to 4ZZZ, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Izzy, J, V, and Gabe, and Jay, mm-hmm. what do you got for us? Well, I actually have an AI double feature this week. Um, if you weren't listening in during our Weird Science, I did a little AI thing about um, journalism outlets mm. seemingly AI generating a bunch of articles and then saying, no, it's not AI generated. We just use fake names and images 
for privacy reasons. Um, so that I mean, was a it's, a, it's a really tricky industry to be in, right? Volleyball reviews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see why you wouldn't want big volleyball coming after you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bit of a dark side of AI, mm. but there are some good applications. I'm not a total AI hater. Um, there are some good applications, and one of them um, is an example of a world-first piece of technology that comes right out of Brisbane, actually, right here. This tool is all about tracking wildlife. At the moment, tracking wildlife... Yes, I knew you'd like it, Gabe. Mm. <laughs> tracking wildlife involves a lot of hours of field work, and it's a very fiddly and precise um, thing to try and do. Expeditions into areas to try and count animals takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, trapping animals is fairly unethical, and relying on sensors and cameras or other technology is fine but often results in a lot of data to sift through so this team from qt i'm sorry i didn't look up the qs ranking qt yeah they're about 80 something aren't they all right i believe so uh, this team from qt has previously done work in setting up what they call audio observatories there are 360 of these sites around australia they're solar powered noise activated microphones which record anything that might be around in the area the initial trial of audio observatories is set to run for five years, but they're recording absolutely enormous amounts of data. So, um, Dr. Paul Rowe from QUT, QS ranking 189. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Nice. Um, Dr. Paul Rowe says, sorry, Professor Paul Rowe says, so far it would take. 300 years to listen to everything that they've recorded <laughs> so in other words sorting through all that data and categorizing it into what sounds belong to what animal is a job that would take many many lifetimes so that's where the ai comes in qt partnered with google to make a2o search a tool that is essentially a google search for the audio recorded data users can upload a recording of an animal and then get given all the matches for the same sound across that 300 years worth of data the results will can be sorted by date and location so they can tell you where that animal was recorded and when professor rose says there's heaps of reasons why this might be useful as you can probably imagine um, it can be used to track endangered species, track invasive species, figuring out what happens to animals after bushfires, like where do they go and when do they come back, and also figuring out which areas might be important for conservation targets. And anyone can use A2O Search. It's open source. So if you Google the audio observatory or A2O Search, um, you can put in a little recording and see where that things have been located it's also really useful for like I, I already said endangered species but if you as professor rose said if you even just have one call uh recorded of that mm. creature you can put it in and see if it's been recorded anywhere which saves a lot of time staking out trying to find that these unique really signature of that animal or not that individual not, not animal. The specific animal yeah but but that species where it's been found because i've got a magpie at home that has that <laughs> special uh a song special that it call. sings and i yeah. just know it's around yeah. When, when the That's cute. It's amazing. It's really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet. really cool. Well, there you go. That's my story of how Because I wanted AI to track the movements of that particular magpie. Almost stalkish, like. I anyway. think they've done that with. You can use magnetic trackers, Max, and you can, get, oh, okay. you can track mm. your individual magpie. But this stuff with the, the AI is amazing. Like, it's. Ecology at its core. Mm. is like the science of counting stuff. That's really what ecologists <laughs> do. They yes. become professional counters and they become fantastic in like counting stuff in statistically beautiful ways, but it takes so much time. I, there's so many projects that I've seen of people 
tearing through footage or, or audio recordings of like microbats or of the ocean looking for humpback whale cores and seeing how they move around. And it is such painstaking work. Like it is literally yeah. scrolling through mm. hours of audio files, mm. cleaning them up, visually using frequency maps, identifying sounds, listening to those sounds, like manually clipping those out and comparing them mm. and running models against them. And it's so time consuming. Like you said, Jay, like they said, they've mm. recorded 300 years worth of, of recordings, right? In just this one little research project. Like the, the amount of stuff out there is incredible. But it feels like we're at this point now where it's almost like if you're doing this sort of work, it's worth waiting until the AI gets to a point where yeah, it can work. It really and it will be quicker it. than yeah. starting now manually mm. and, and trying to do it yourself, which is so exciting because mm. it's been this lag effect of we've had the technology now of how to monitor the world around us. We've got all these bioacoustic recorders and all these camera traps that are incredible and all these other ways like environmental DNA and all sorts of other things to track what's going on in the world. But we can't actually get that data yet because it's there's so much of it. There's just gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of these things sitting in people's to hard drives. And yeah. Ready to be processed yeah. and ready to be further studied. And it feels like we're on the edge now of, of where we might be able to now have the technology to actually go through that stuff and make those identifications, which is already happening. Like I think only a few weeks ago, I think one of you guys on the show talked about how they someone in Queensland had identified a threatened bird species for the first time in Australia using AI to mm. pick it out, right. one particular species. Yeah, and yeah. so now that this Google thing is theoretically able to just, you can give it a recording and it will give you a list of species out. It's yeah. just nuts. And it's also like a bit of a citizen science project as well. Like people, anyone can upload their recordings mm. into it as well. So Professor Rose said um, he like expects that once this really gets off the ground, they could see it expand up to like a thousand years. <laughs> oh, oh, actual data. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, just like yeah, that yeah. many hours yes. of, of yeah, okay. recordings being uploaded. So mm. it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really exciting. I was going to ask about that, whether like other users could upload things or mm -hmm. whether it was just coming from this research group. No, um, anyone can upload. That's super cool. I'm going to upload my AI voice and see what it can <laughs> oh, oh, my God. God. I really thought you said you're going to upload your magpie. Yeah. Typical Max fashion. I'm calling it a we do the Hot 100 at the uh, New Year's Day at Trifford, and I'm thinking this song will be in the top 10. I'm pretty yep. sure it will be. They're local artists. Your predictions in the past, Max, how accurate have those been? And not so good. No. In front of me again, go. You tune in to 4 Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Izzy, Jay, Fee, and Gabe. And Such hard some. work having <laughs> to get through everyone's names. <laughs> Going wow. through the alphabet. We should come in less often. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gabe, you got some space news for us? Or I got some free space, space news for you. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Cool. Yeah. Because um, do you remember, Max, uh, earlier in this year, the little helicopter that's on Mars called Ingenuity mm. went through a period where we sort of weren't talking about it for a while. Yes. And then I asked you, what happened to Ingenuity? Because it was sitting around 50 flights. And you, you hadn't you usually put it in your updates when it gets a new flight successfully recorded and you hadn't mentioned it for a while. I'm like, what's happened to Ingenuity? And you, you looked into it and came back the week after and, and found that it was scheduled for a flight, uh, but there was no... Usually they, they sort of give you an update when there's a flight scheduled and then you get something saying that it's been successfully completed mm -hmm. and they hadn't put up that successful completion thing. And it took a while. It was like two yeah, months between flights 52 yeah. and 53. Uh, what I've, I've stumbled well, across... We went through a period, period of mourning, didn't we? We did. You thought it was dead. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Uh, and then it came back on, and it's now done 66 flights, yes. and it's still powering on. But a, a NASA engineer called Travis Brown, he's the chief engineer of Ingenuity Mars Helicopter mm. at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, he's 
come online and written a blog about what happened in this little mystery blip of two months between flights 52 and 53 on Mars. And I loved reading this, so I thought I'd share it Thank with you. the class. Uh, because I don't know, it just I, like I just love this stuff because this is sort of you know the the tip of the spear of human exploration at the moment, and to get these little insights, it's just a blog written by the chief engineer, just a very sort of you know word of mouth style thing, yeah, of very explaining candid, what went on yeah. during that time, very candid yeah. thing, um, and so they they he starts by saying that in April they'd done flight fifty two, um, and flight fifty two was built to do a sort of scout ahead of Perseverance. At the moment, there's Perseverance, the rover on Mars, and Ingenuity, the little Mars Golfer. helicopter that was supposed to yep. only last five flights. Its initial pur purpose, its whole existence, was to go onto Mars and prove that you can fly a drone on Mars. That's that's mm. it. That's all that, that was its modem operandi. And, and so that. Th and, and they were going to mothball it too, that, that, year, yeah. that same year, after yeah. the five flights. They were happy with that yeah. and job done. But th there was such outrage when NASA came out saying that they're going to mothball it that they, NASA had to acquiesce and say, okay, we'll keep flying until it dies. And because it's not dying. <laughs> so, so. 66. <laughs> and, and so, but apparently after it hit that five flight mark, right, it, they had to change all of its reasons for existing. Mm. It's number one purpose now it's got four purposes number one is avoid interference of the operations of perseverance yes That's its number yeah, one yeah. purpose Aww. is to stay out of way of perseverance yeah. it's number two is to maintain that its own health and safety number three is to do some scouting for planning and science assessments and number four is to do some uh, experimentation for future rotorcrafts or Yes. drones basically yeah. on Mars yeah. uh, so those are its purposes so what that means is when it's flying it has to stay within what I think is like in the low hundreds of meters away from Perseverance to be able to communicate back to Earth that mm. it's done successful you know what's happened in its flight and what and, and all the parameters for the next flight and that sort of thing so but they can't fly uh, behind Perseverance because it wouldn't be able to do enough flying it would potentially crash into Perseverance in the worst case scenario mm. they can't fly next to it because they're grounding they don't like the the like the safety of, of flying it on the not flat ground that could be next to Perseverance and a couple other things that they don't want to fly next to Perseverance for. Yeah. So they do it in front. So it's it currently sort of sits in front of Perseverance. Perseverance catches up. It takes off and flies, you know, 100 right. metres. It actually flies forward. out of range of Perseverance. And right. Perseverance has to catch up to it before it can communicate back to Earth yes. that it's okay because Perseverance, the rover, is used as a relay device for the mini chopper because they didn't have, it'd be too heavy the craft would be too heavy if it had all the communication equipment on board the helicopter so they have to rely on perseverance's communication equipment and that's exactly what happened in flight 52 mm. where it went off the radar for a chunk of time it had flown they thought they'd sort of done this scouting of a bit of a, a valley thing and so they flew ingenuity the helicopter out to where Perseverance, the rover, was supposed to be in a couple of Sol's time. Sol's and Mars days, they're hmm. like 20, 24 and a half Earth hours long. Uh, so they just flew it up to where Perseverance was going to go to. But then the Perseverance team suddenly had a massive change of plans. And so, oh, that's <laughs> so and turned the other direction. <laughs> Let's look over here. And went yeah, off somewhere. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And went off somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and it took something like, I think, 10 Sol's days before it started to actually like take samples it had all these problems you know how when it first started the rover couldn't pick up samples yeah, it was just bottling it's, empty it's nothingness shambles, it? it started yeah. doing that it did that twice <laughs> it got a successful pickup and then couldn't yeah. seal it so yeah. it took ages for perseverance mm. to get a sample of this new area they'd gone scouting eventually they turned it back around it had all these other problems apparently that they didn't really go into huge amounts of detail with because mm. this is the ingenuity team and that's the perseverance yeah. team yeah. Uh, and and then eventually it turned back around and the the chief engineer who's right 
writing this was saying it was a it was kind of a weird moment for them because they got a break because they've they've been working so hard on ingenuity in like ways that no one like you mentioned no one had planned yeah, for this like okay, nasa yeah. wasn't supposed to be working on ingenuity at the moment so That's they've got it. this team of people who are working overtime trying to keep it running and they got a break but it was a break where they didn't know if it had successfully landed for two months yeah. Uh, or so until yeah. Perseverance finally got back into range and it pinged back that it was okay. And then after a little bit of uh, uh, sort of checks and things and scouting out a new route, they'd wanted they'd realised that the the ingenuity had landed in an area. Uh, th this whole time been sitting on an area which had these pebbles that they'd never really seen before, like these really beautifully formed pebbles. And they're like, oh, this is really cool. Uh, what, a, what a coincidence. Yeah, let's let's scout this out. Yeah. So Flight 53, two months after Flight 52, the biggest flight they've had since it landed on Mars, mm. uh, was, scouted, was a scouting mission to go check out this area to see how this formation had come about with all these weird little pebbles that they hadn't really seen before. Uh, and then w they got the report back that during Flight 53, Ingenuity had had an error message come up which forced it to land. It was like an abort message, so it had to come straight down to land because something had gone wrong in the navigation systems. They haven't figured out what went wrong yet. They yeah. still don't know what happened on this flight, but mm. something had happened and it dropped to land. They, by pure chance, a few flights before, someone had updated this emergency landing procedure so that if it wasn't critical, it would scout for a safe landing spot. The initial code that had been sent up to Mars with is, if you need to emergency land, just drop where right. you are okay. and so yeah, yeah. it could be lost if it's on yeah. a bit of rock right so intelligent uh, landing yeah okay yeah so yeah. they by by chance factored mm. this in a few flights earlier added it to its to its coding so that yeah. it would if it needed to abort the landing find a safe place safe place place safe and then place again. <laughs> i said it again <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> come down to land uh and then so they've, they've had this two-month delay they found something really cool after the two-month delay and it was still alive they sent it on this flight to go check out the cool thing they get back an error message and then once again max they have to wait for perseverance to catch up to make sure it's okay and eventually perseverance did get there sent back photos it just looks like ingenuity sitting there cool as a cucumber it looks yeah. like it's in like a gravel car park just a red brown gravel car park chilling out, waiting for Perseverance. Uh, by that time, the rover had done the scouting that Ingenuity was going to do. So it's just gone back to its standard hopping in front of Perseverance from flights 54 to, I think we're at 66, 66 or something yeah. now. Yeah. Mm. Uh, throughout all of its time on Mars, it's done uh, 118 minutes of flying. It's covered 15 Ks. It's gotten to 25 meters in altitude. Uh, and it's been running for over two years, like nearly two and a half years now. Mm. Actually, I think it's exactly two and a yeah, half years right. now. Nice, uh, and what's pretty exciting, though, is at the end of this blog, the chief engineer goes on to say that they're pretty excited because next year there'll be a period of time where the Perseverance rover is pretty much staying in the same place for right. a, for about yeah, two yeah. months. Yeah. And they'll be having about two months of Getting a service, really cool... Yeah. No, of actually being able to scout around and do its mm. own thing, a bit yeah. of ingenuity, be able to do its own thing right. uh, while Perseverance sticks in the same spot. So there's more, a lot more planned for ingenuity, this thing that was supposed to do five flights and is now done 66 on the surface of Mars. And that's my little ingenuity update for you. I highly recommend go look up the long wait on the, the blog for NASA's Mars helicopter. No idea, space news. Well, content warning for this next article, erectile dysfunction. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> if you're planning to leave the blue dot anytime soon, you may want to pack some 
little blue pills. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it turns out space can be hazardous to the male anatomy for those extended stays away on the moon or possibly Mars. They say space is hard, but new research oh. says no. Oh boy. Oh God. A study has found that male, and this is where I was hoping they were using echidnas on this one, but no. No, they used rats, male rats, exposed to simulated space flight were at higher risk of erectile dysfunction than those that were not. The researchers tested 86 rats in six different groups, each exposed to varying levels of galactic cosmic radiation at NASA's Space Radiation Laboratory and simulated microgravity with hind limb unloading, whatever that means. They found that even after 12 to 13 months of recovery, rats still had vascular changes linked to erectile dysfunction. H3 Japan Space Agency JAXA says it aims to make a second attempt to launch the country's new flagship rocket called H3 by the end of March next year. The first, the first launch ended in tragedy with the rocket's second stage failing to fire up its engine. After analysing all the flight data and conducting further studies, JAXA reckons they got it all sorted and that the March flight should be a success. Let's hope so. SpaceX... Overall number of flights as of the 20th of November this year stands at 87 for this calendar year. Wow. So breaking it down, Falcon 9, its workhorse, has flown 81 times this year. The Falcon Heavy has flown for four launches, or flown four times. There's been two demonstration flights of the fully reusable Starship, and with at least another... How reusable were those demonstrations though, Max? Well, (laughs) give it time. Reusable. What, where, do you think, where do you think they got to Falcon 9? They started off with Falcon 1. So, <laughs> so do the maths. So they're allowed, they're allowed eight more flights. Well, six more flights. With at least another five, uh, five Falcon 9 flights to be launched this year, that brings the total to over 90 flights, which is tantalizingly close to their aspirational goal of 100 launches this year. And Ingenuity 2.0, Gabe, following on for what you were saying. Mm-hmm. On the back of Ingenuity success flying the 66 flights, NASA has been hard at work testing new rotors and components for the next iteration of Ingenuity. NASA says they are in a fortunate position of having actually two test environments, one on Earth and one on Mars. And this is why JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, has been pushing the limits of the Mars Mini Chopper of late, flying higher, flying faster and performing softer landings. The only limit they will not pursue is flying for longer because ingenuity tends to overheat. Flights 67 and 68 have already been scheduled once the Earth-Mars-Solar conjunction ends and they can communicate with Mini Chopper. So I say, Godspeed, ingenuity, <laughs> let's make it to 69, only for Izzy's sake. Hell and that yeah. is it for Space News this week. Hell Amazing. yeah, pretty cool. We've just been informed by Gabe that we should end the show soon. So you tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea, but not for much longer. Sign us out, Gabe. Uh, we've got. You can listen back to our show though on the Four Triple Z website, fourtriplez.org.au, or on pretty much any podcasting platform at the moment as a podcast without the music. It's all cut out, and it's just us yabbering at you for about an hour on your podcasting app of choice. Big shout out to Toby for cutting that up every week for us. He does mm-hmm. an incredible job. Thanks, Toby. Thanks, Toby. <laughs> you can uh, find all the music we played and all the stories we covered on the website as well, fortunesz.org.au. We'll be back on your airwaves next week. But between now and then, I just got to say thank you to Max and Izzy and V and Jay and Peter for stories this week. We'll catch you then. See ya. Bye.
See ya. Okay. Bye. 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 Oh my goddamn marvel of modern science. Bye.